1: the Russian invasion of Ukraine has already changed the world. Why did it happen? Who's winning? How will it end? Christopher Miller is the author of The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be good to be here. And uh, could you just start by really explaining your personal connection with Ukraine? Because you didn't start off there. You're, I should say you're a journalist now. You didn't start off as a journalist there.
0: Uh, I, I did. I did begin uh, my, my, my career. I've, I've always been a journalist, um, but I did take a two year break uh, or hiatus in uh, 2010, 11, uh, well, 2010 through 2012. And I left uh, the U.S. and went to Ukraine as a uh, United States Peace Corps volunteer, which is a 27 month commitment and uh, you, you don't really get to choose where you go. And I, I didn't, um, uh, at that time, have a particular interest in Ukraine. And I didn't have any uh, family connections or, or any other types of connections to Ukraine, actually. And, and I had, had hoped to go to someplace in, in Africa. Instead, the Peace Corps sent me to Ukraine. And then on arrival here, I found out that I would be going even further and, and toward the east of the country uh, to a city uh, by the name then of Artyomovsk, which is now called bakhmut and found myself just a few hours from the russian border in this this city of uh, around 70 to to 80,000 people predominantly russian speakers it felt quite a ways away from from the capital of kiev it was about a 13 14 hour overnight train ride followed by either a, a 20 minute taxi ride or a 40 minute bus ride to the city and then i i found myself there as the only american in in that in that city and uh, learned russian uh, quickly you know tried to do what i ca- what, what i what i could to integrate into that that city and its and its society and i spent the next 2 years there uh, working in a couple of the city's schools, helping out the city government with various events, um, helping some some community organizations, and uh, also found my found my way around the region. And and so I, I would do some some journalism lectures and courses in the regional capital of Donetsk, as well as some other various things uh, at cities in the region there. And so over that period of two years, I really got to know uh, what is called the Donbas or or. Um, the uh, the eastern region that comprises both the Donetsk and Lugansk regions in 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 eastern Ukraine and um, also the people and the culture, which really you know kind of gave me a baseline um, and and this this important background and knowledge of the country that has really come in handy in recent years covering uh, Russia's war against Ukraine.
1: Yes, well, exactly. There can't be many people reporting on Bakhmut, as uh, many journalists around the world did in recent months who actually lived there. So it, it does put you in an extraordinary position, really. I mean, when you lived in those bits of Donbass, did, what did you gather at that stage about the attitudes of the Russians living there towards Russia, towards Ukraine, and the Ukrainians living there, uh, you know, ethnically Ukrainian people, about what they felt about it all? What, what was your understanding of the politics before the invasion?
0: Yeah, you know, I, when I arrived there, I really made you know, made an effort to keep a very open mind. Again, I didn't know much about Ukraine at the time, and I was learning Russian, and really everything was brand new to me. So I, I wanted to come in completely open to to everything, and I, I sort of set this um, this this rule for myself, which was uh, that barring any sort of uh, Crazy outlandish request I would say yes to just about everything so that I would find myself in new situations, sometimes some uncomfortable situations, but always these these types of places and situations uh, in which i would I would learn a lot and you know there there were some outside views of of eastern Ukraine as being this place that was very pro Russian uh, because it was a place known to uh, be home to people who speak predominantly Russian, and what I found was a place that was much more complex than uh, what what most people believed uh, the region to be. You know, for example, uh, there was a large Ukrainian contingent of, of of ethnic Ukrainians and and Ukrainian speakers. You know, it was a Ukrainian speaking area prior to Russia's. Industrialization of the region, um, you know, almost almost a hundred years ago now, and um, you know the Soviets really built up the region uh, to 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 mine its coal mines, to work its its um, large uh, steel and and uh, metal factories there, and they brought in Russians, ethnic Russians and, and Russian speakers, which which over decades, you know, really had an impact on the region and, and shaped it into you know this this place where there was a larger affinity toward Russia and, and sympathies toward Russia than say, for example, here in Kiev or or some someplace uh, further west in the country. But you know, a lot of people there had a strong regional identity. Many people would identify themselves as as people from from the Donbass. Um, you no know, nobody told me that they wanted to uh, just for example, uh, give up their Ukrainian citizenship and join Russia. Um, really very few people ever said, you know, something along those lines. And most of them were people of of uh, retired age who were somewhat nostalgic for the Soviet Union and the quote unquote, good old days. You know, many, many younger people, working age people were, were happy to be Ukrainian, or at the very least, you know, absolutely fine with with being in independent Ukraine. and And many people, you know, didn't want to be a part of Russia. They saw, you know, they were looking across the border and also reading news reports about how the political uh, uh, situation in Russia was devolving under Vladimir Putin. And they were happy to be in independent Ukraine if, you know, they were also a little bit frustrated with Ukraine's government in Kiev and with the political situation there. And and regarding politics, I would say that most people, while, while they voted for a party that was Russia-friendly, um, the Party of Regions, which was headed by the then President Viktor Yanukovych, who would later be ousted by Ukraine's revolutionaries in 2013 and 2014, they were very apathetic. You know, people really just wanted to go about their lives, go to work, be with their families. You know, there was a lot of people that I that I knew and was close with there really sort of worked for the weekend. You know, they they weren't necessarily like many um, American friends of mine and um and maybe even myself you know who are largely defined by by what they do professionally you know many people were were proud to do the work that they did but but you know their their best moments and and what they really wanted to do were were spent you know with with their family and the people they cared about
1: now then i i sort of said in the intro we'd we'd look at uh, why did it happen basically where is it now and where's it going so on the why did it happen i think you know many people will given all the coverage that's been been pretty familiar with the two versions of history that are out there, but perhaps you could just sort of briefly run through the Russian version, and in particular, Putin's version, because he wrote a a document, didn't he? You know, quite a long time before the invasion, uh, giving his view of Ukraine and its status. So what is the Putin version of Ukrainian history?
0: Well, the the Putin version of of Ukraine is that Ukraine is a manufactured place it's it's not a real country it was created by the soviets uh and and essentially it was a, a a swath of territory given to people who identified as ukrainians you know vladimir putin's revisionist history um sees ukrainians as not real people but russians who have gone awry he doesn't believe in the ukrainian language or in ukrainian culture and he has now set out to destroy those things, the language, the culture and uh, and the people. You know, many Ukrainians argue that this is a genocidal war, that Putin wants to completely eradicate them and their country, not just subjugate Ukraine, but to completely destroy it. And, you know, I mean, just the, 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 the you know, when you when you get down to it, Vladimir Putin really doesn't want this place to exist. Um, you know, but but he's come up against a, a people who are very proud to be who they are, um, and, and they are the Ukrainians. And so, you know, switching switching to what you know how, how what Ukraine's view is. You know, Ukraine has been around for uh, centuries, and the Ukrainians love to boast that there was life and 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 uh, a city in Kiev and a ruler in Kiev long before there was in Moscow. The quip here is that uh, Kiev was a city before, or you know, while Russia was still a for, or while Moscow was still a forest, and you know, the, the Ukrainians have essentially been fighting for their freedom and independence for centuries against. Russian imperialism you know this is just essentially the latest chapter of it but you know what they are facing right now to them is an existential fight this is nothing less than a fight for survival it's not a a, a conflict between you know russia and the west even though there are elements of that this is very much a a war that targets targets them and uh, you know vladimir putin and his uh propagandists who have gone on television and and many of his military generals who have spoken out as well have said what he has said and and that is that you know the the ukrainians uh need not to exist and and so that's what the the ukrainians are are fighting against that is why they will not give up and they are, of course, asking for all sorts of, of military equipment and support from us in the West. Whether or not they get it, they will continue f- to fight because of that very thing that I've just explained there.
1: There's another part of the history which you'll be in a great position to make a comment on. The, the Russian version is that the Ukrainians are Nazis, and there's the whole history of the Second World War in Ukraine. Can you take us through what the Germans did in Ukraine in the Second World War, how complicit Ukrainians were in that, and, and then I'll ask you another question about it. So first of all, let's just do the background.
0: Sure. So Nazi Germany did invade Ukraine and the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet Ukraine at the time during World War II. They pushed their way eastward, from, first from um, you know the city that we know now today as Lviv, um, going all the way um, to modern day Russia. Even when I was living in Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine in, in 2011, I, I passed some some city workers that were exhuming. Uh, the bodies of of Nazi soldiers from the the central square. So they they really did um, make their way across all of Ukraine, and they they were met by stiff resistance by the Red Army and also by partisans fighting them in the streets, uh, you know, with with makeshift weapons. In in Western Ukraine, however, there was a contingent of Ukrainian nationalists who viewed the uh, uh, Soviet communist leadership as as political nemeses as well, and, and you know, were, were passionate about Ukrainian independence. And so when the Nazis came marching into their territories, some of them uh, linked up with, with them and did fight against the Red Army, thinking that, they might be able to carve out something of their own um, and declare an independent Ukraine. So this is a small group of collaborators that did carry out some atrocities um, against Poles, for example, you know, and, and did join up with some of the factions within the Nazi army. This their, their their dream of a small little independent Ukraine at the time, of course, did not work out. But but it's it's this uh, contingent of small contingent of Ukrainian nationalists. Um, Because of their very short period of collaboration with the Nazis, um, again, because they were against communist rule, that today's Russia and Vladimir Putin has used... You know this um this idea that the, today's war is a continuation of that that ukrainians remain um so extreme in their nationalism that they are nazis or or you know some in russia would say neo-nazis and that that is what he is fighting against and what russian uh, soldiers are fighting against um you know the continuation of the war that their grandfathers fought now, that can't be further from the truth. Of course, um, you know, we have a Jewish president here in Ukraine, um, a Muslim defense minister was just appointed. Um, you know, this is uh, a country of, of, of various religions, and there, there are no more Nazis than there are in you know any other country um, that has some kind of small, marginalized, you know, faction of, of some political activist types.
1: You mentioned there was, you know, a small number of collaborators actively fighting and, and responsible for some, um, you know, terrible attacks and, and murders and so on. Uh, was there a wider feeling amongst, you know, when we're talking now the older generation in Ukraine, you know, barely alive still, but amongst those who lived through the Second World War, that the German, I mean, I've heard this remark, that the German occupiers were better than the Russian occupiers you know, which doesn't mean that people were collaborating, but just that their experience of the war was that they preferred it under the Germans than they did under the Russians. Huh.
0: You know, that's that's interesting. I haven't heard that myself. I, I, I can't I can't say that I've interviewed anyone still alive today who remembers that time. I, I've read a couple of of um, Ukrainian reports that have. Uh, had interviews with people from that time. And and I, I haven't seen that necessarily. However, I mean, just, you know, looking at what the what the Nazis did in Ukraine then, and seeing for myself, uh, what the Russians have done and are doing to Ukrainians in Ukraine right now. I mean, th- these are uh, both 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 armies, you know, have committed and are committing Now um, you know being Russia horrific horrific atrocities, and I don't imagine you know I I I really don't want to say that life under the Nazis was 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 uh, good no, or certainly t- not you know um, <laughs> it's too, it's too uh, really it go. certainly wasn't it certainly wasn't uh, certainly wasn't good but I can tell you that you know what I know from from my reporting here and my Ukrainian um, uh, friends and acquaintances including those people who have lived under Russian occupation is that it's an absolute nightmare it's it's total repression and oppression and you know it's it's people being locked in basements and and tortured and abused and you know f- forced re-education and 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 all sorts of atrocities, um, you know, mass graves turn up everywhere we go when there's a new village or a town liberated here by the Ukrainian forces. And so, you know, I don't think that life under either was uh, was good at all. But certainly, what is being experienced now is is also you know horrific.
1: You will have seen, I'm sure, the social media videos of Ukrainians. Apparently, naturally shot. You know, I mean, they, 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 you know, like a lot of fake news. They, they appear genuine. And I mean, I'm going to ask you whether you think these are fake or not. You know, of Nazi salutes and and such things. Uh, have you ever? I mean, you, you've been there for throughout this thing. Have you ever seen that? And if not, do you think these social media messages are literally just fakes, or or do you think they're, as you say, there's always. A very small group in every country that has these sympathies, and it's those people. What do you make of it all?
0: Well, I, you know, I think I think the latter, and, I, and I'll you know I, I will say that I'm somebody who has covered you know the far right and extremism, um, you know, in, in various places. Uh, the United States, you know, I, for, I spent several months covering our extremists in the United States and, and the far right. I've covered you know far right extremism across Europe, including um, some of the factions here in Ukraine. You know, the the Azov Battalion of 2014 and some of their Um, Splinter street movements and political party here I've covered because the U.S. State Department had labeled one of those uh, outfits as a nationalist hate group. You know, these these groups do exist, but, you know, they're on a very, very small scale. I think that they get outsized attention oftentimes, uh, including from us in the media, because of that, you know, that um, sensational element of this being, you know, not just a hobby club or anything. But but, you know, if if somebody puts up a Nazi salute or you see a, a Nazi related symbol, I mean, you know, Nazi Germany, that that rings a lot of bells for people. Right. And and um, uh, raises concerns. Um these, these groups, though, are very marginal here. And, you know, the, the Ukrainians are the first to say that there is no far right party that has, um, you know, a faction in parliament here, while there are plenty in, in the EU who do, um, you know, that it is true that there are men on the front line who, uh, you know, wear far right patches, uh, who certainly have. Um, you know, symbols on their on their clothing, or they make posts on social media that are related to Nazism or extremism in some way. But again, I will just underscore that, you know, they are a very, very small number of people. Uh, you know, that even in in my home country of the United States, you know, we have an issue with with far right extremists in the military, um, you know, that I know in the last few years has been a, a major topic of discussion. And I, I would not I would not say that there is a problem in Ukraine that is any larger than certainly than that. Um, or many other um, uh, European Union countries, you know, um, Germany included, which in recent years has, has dealt with far-right extremist groups within their security services and their police, um, as well as their military.
1: Let's go to, um, well, let me ask you, are there any other historical issues that you think people don't understand? Yeah, in, in, who might be listening to this, which is mainly a, a Western audience, but I, I should say that we have listeners in every country in the world except North Korea, I think. Uh, but um, where, where is there anything else that you think people ought to know about the history?
0: Well, I think, I, well, there is a lot. The short answer is there is a lot. I think a lot of people don't know, you know, because Ukraine is this really complex place. I don't know anything that's very black and white here, you know. Um, and, and and that's kind of the 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 interesting the interesting bit of, of of Ukraine, you know, is that nothing is is easy. Everything is rather complex. Um, you know, one thing off the top of my head, that I sort of touched on um, uh, related to the Donbas, is that uh, you, you know there we we in the West and also Ukraine's own political parties historically since independence have sort of looked at Ukraine as East versus West. The pro-Russian side versus the pro-Western side of the country, and and that's not accurate. Um, it there is there you know always has been um, pro-Russian and and anti-Russian sympathy in various places. You know it, it is a country that is bilingual predominantly, but but increasingly multilingual. Uh, you, English is heard everywhere here. There's uh, you know a. a, a group of people who now are coming of age and are young working adults that don't know That don't recall the soviet union they were born in um you know just before the collapse of the ussr or just afterward um you know they really were raised in independent ukraine and they have a very pro-western view of the world they're very progressive you know they've 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 traveled they have experiences that are similar to those that we have in the west um you know they take vacations in the czech republic or italy or france just like we do and it's it's increasingly becoming a westernized European country. It's it's not some backwater in Eastern Europe or a former Soviet Republic or a a post-Soviet place anymore. It very much is a a European country that feels as European as anywhere else that I've traveled. Uh, and, And, you know, I think that's that is what's really important, because I think, you know, a lot of times when I go back to uh, I stop in London or I, st- or I go home to New York or, or, or elsewhere, um, a lot of people I find are very interested in Ukraine, but they do still have this idea of it being uh, somewhere far flung, and in, you know, uh, maybe maybe even, you know, sort of historically belonging to Russia. Um, they're unaware of that history that you and I talked about. And they think it's some kind of, um, you know, backwater where people are living rough and some kind of second world country or third world country. And, and that isn't the case. You know, I can tell you just a couple of funny details here. I mean, I have never lived or worked in a place where the trains in the metro system run to the minute where I don't have to carry around a wallet because everything is digitalized and I can just pay with my phone, you know it's it's very much or, or a place where I've had as fast a Wi-Fi as, as uh, I, I do now in my apartment here uh, in, in central Kiev, so just a few examples of, of what I think you know are sort of glossed over or not fully uh, realized.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I could just say that I, I actually visited Kiev in the communist days and saw, yeah, frankly, how grim it was, particularly on the outskirts of Kiev. I was looking someone up in a block of apartments there, and it was absolutely miserable.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, you'd uh, be surprised how far uh, it's come now.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. Now, I did go back to cover a bit of the fighting in, before this invasion, but to cover some of the stuff going on in eastern Ukraine, and, and was struck by exactly what you say, that the difference was just astonishing. And, yeah, this was all done without European Union membership. I mean, I've seen it in other East European Countries where the EU accession process forced them to modernise much more quickly than I thought they would otherwise have done, but in in Ukraine, you know, they did it really without even EU membership. I'm sure, maybe not to the same degree, but nonetheless, it it, it it's exactly as you describe. It's a it's a modern European country. Uh, w- when we get to the current political situation, Zelensky. Is beginning to take some knocks in the Western press, having had hero worship basically up until now. Where does he stand in Ukrainian public opinion?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think he he began taking some knocks uh, here in Ukraine ever, uh, you know, long before he uh, did from the Western media and and, and international community. You know, a lot of Ukrainians. Well, first of all, I guess if you look back taking a step back to his election, right? He won with over 70% of the vote against um, a deeply unpopular president, Petro Poroshenko. That popularity allowed him to to secure a majority in parliament over the next few months. Um, He made some big campaign promises. One was to end the war uh, with Russia and also to stamp out corruption. He was unable to deliver on those immediately. And Ukrainians, you know, they grow they grow tired of their political leaders very quickly. They love change here. They've only ever once only once reelected a president in their independent history. And so within the first year President Zelensky's popularity had had fallen by the time the Russian full-scale invasion began his popularity had dropped to uh, if I remember correctly just around 30% give or take maybe maybe a little bit more but that's more than half of his popular uh, more than half of the 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 percentage in which he won the presidential election just a, a few years prior so when when the war began um, in those first few days there were a lot of really angry very frustrated Um, Very confused people. It was a chaotic situation, of course. Missiles were falling down. Russian jets were in the sky. Ukrainians were fleeing by the millions um, to Western Ukraine or the border. And a lot of them were asking, why weren't we prepared? Why didn't our president tell us we should, um, you know, prepare for something like this? And you'll recall that Western intelligence was warning of a full-scale invasion. And President Zelensky was saying, you know, please don't cause panic in the country. We're, we're keeping an eye on things. But They were reading the intelligence differently. Zelensky and his team were looking at Western intelligence reports and saying, you know, we see the same numbers that you see and we see the same Russian military units you see. But looking at those, we don't think that's enough to launch a full-scale invasion. So in that sense, they were right. But the Russians were bold enough to try it anyway, and that's where they were wrong. And so this invasion did happen on a massive scale, and troops were pushing toward Kiev. And Ukrainians were unprepared, largely unprepared. And so there were traffic jams, there were people, you know, rushing to pull money out of the bank. Gas was almost nowhere to be found for a few weeks here. And and I think because of that, a lot of people, you know, were, were very frustrated with Zelensky and I, th- I think that, re- that, that remained for a very short period of time, but they began um, to see also this new Zelensky emerge, this wartime president emerge. You know, he steps out uh, from, from his, his bunker inside of his presidential administration onto the street with some of his top officials and gives what is probably uh, the most important and and yet shortest speech of his presidential career. I think it's roughly 40 seconds long. And he says, I'm here. We are here. And he tells Ukrainians to to fight, that he's not going to leave their side. He's in Kiev. They're working. And I think from, from that point forward through the next uh roughly year, they were, you know, very supportive of their president. There really was this sort of unspoken rule that you know you should not criticized Ukraine's leadership including the
1: president Can I just break in and just say that bit of tape I actually use it in in a in a, in a lecture series I do with some students to sh- as the most astonishing bit of political communication i've ever seen yeah. i mean it, it, it is it is so powerful and uh, conveyed everything he wanted to say as you say in in about 40 seconds
0: yeah yeah i, I think you know I, I, somebody could try to argue but i, I think I, I think i would win the argument in saying that it was probably the most important thing he has done as president just simply staying in kiev making that speech you know, letting people know that, that the, you know, the president was there, the military was there, that, you know, what Russia, you know, believed would happen, and and what some in the West even thought would happen, um, you know, the, the military standing down or, or not being able to respond didn't. And, you know, because of that, they still, the Ukrainians still have a very overwhelmingly positive view of the president. but. You know, it's now more than a year and a half into this this brutal Russian war of aggression against against Ukraine and its people, and and people are exhausted. And right now, when you've got a counteroffensive that's three months in and it hasn't produced a lot of the results that people hope for, you know, frustrations come to the surface and people start airing grievances and asking questions. And um, you know, there has been, I think, in recent Weeks, if not months, a return of internal politics. you know there there has been some criticism of the president um and and his decision making over the last year and a half. In some cases, the the uh, criticism has not been um, military related or at least not directly, but um rather how he is approaching the reform process as Ukraine progresses toward um, uh, eu negotiations, you know in in hopes of eventually becoming an eu member. Um so recently, one example is, Ukrainians now, after allowing the President to roll back some, some transparency laws that were in place to prevent corruption uh, you know for, for security reasons, they want them to now be be put back into place and and, and see that as as really a, a key Demand of the EU and something that needs to be done for Ukraine to uh, become a more democratic country and so you know after some foot dragging and a an online petition that got 80,000 80, or more uh, signatures in in i think forty eight hours, the president vetoed a law that would suspend some of these uh, civil civil liberties and and um, um, or not civil liberties, but um, uh, public asset declarations for at least another year. And, and now he's saying, we will go forward in um, passing or, or amending legislation to make sure that we can now return these public declarations as soon as possible. So, you know, this is one way that, that's just, you know, civil society is, is um, um, still, you know, sort of holding the, the president's feet to the flames at the same time, you know, supporting him as a, as a wartime leader.
1: I wanted to ask you about corruption, you know, within the constraint of libel law. So I'll sort of word it in very general terms and just say, before the invasion, did the government, let's just say that way, have a reputation for being corrupt? Uh, yeah, the, the the Zelensky administration, if you like. And since the war began, has that reputation, you know, is there a, you know, I'm not saying there was one before. Was there a reputation before? Is there a reputation now? for corruption in the ukrainian government so largely
0: largely no the the zelensky administration itself and the president himself is has not been known and is not currently known among ukrainians or thought of thought of as um being corrupt you know certainly not Uh, in the way that previous administrations were thought of as being corrupt. You know, many of Ukraine's previous leadership and presidents were oligarchs, businessmen. They, They wielded a lot of power before they came into office. They were rich tycoons. You know who came up in the wild '90s and um, sought out power as they uh, got older to you know and moved into the presidency. Zelensky, you know, was an entertainer, a comedian by by comparison, not certainly not an oligarch, but a successful businessman. That said, there were people that Zelensky brought into his team in the administration who were thought of as being corrupt dealers or alleged to have been involved in in some bad, bad dealings. But it was actually when when Zelensky came to power, not necessarily his administration, but the country was still viewed as a place that had a corruption problem. And so that was why one of his major campaign promises was to stamp out entrenched corruption that has existed throughout its independent history. And he made some progress. There were some laws passed and and, and some things done um, at the request of the EU or uh, under pressure by Ukrainian society that Zelensky was able to do prior to the full-scale invasion. You know, that corruption fight slowed significantly after Russia invaded in 2022, February 2022, um, for obvious reasons. When you have to respond militarily, a lot of the rest of, of what you have going on gets set aside. But we're at this point now, uh, more than a month and a half in, where you know Ukraine wants to walk and chew gum at the same time. They want to be able to conduct their counteroffensive, beat back Russian forces, and show that they're serious about joining the EU. And in, in, in doing so, Uh, continue uh, working on these reforms, including the very crucial anti-corruption reforms that are needed.
1: When you look at Ukrainian society today, I mean, I've I've, uh, spoken to a young Ukrainian who thinks that the mood has changed in the country and that there is a demoralization now about the situation, that in the big cities like Kiev, there are people who have, you know, depressed about what's happening and, and and not really anticipating victory that on the front lines are young men who feel that the public isn't really with them as strongly as they were but are fighting largely to honor the memory of their comrades who've died and that there is a morale problem do 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 you see that i I don't want to make a
0: sweeping judgment or
1: or assessment
0: saying that there is you know a broad morale problem or that there is widespread anger and frustration um, because that's that's not that's not accurate. But those things do exist. People are frustrated. they are tired. they're exhausted after you know more than a year and a half of of war and 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 you know missiles falling on their head and losing loved ones and and their livelihoods and and some in some cases their entire cities. you know, but i I still see morale relatively high. Uh, you know when I visit the soldiers, they, on the front lines, um, you know, they they have low points, they'll, they'll, they'll come back from a particularly grueling fight. And, you know, maybe half of them will come back in one piece, and the other half will have been killed or badly wounded. And, you know, that's, that's oftentimes a low point. Uh, but they'll go out the next day, and they'll gain 300 meters of territory. And then they're riding high, and they come back and, you know, there's music playing and, um, you know, they, uh, they, they, they celebrate with you know, barbecue or, or some, some, you know, hot tea or something like that. Here in Kiev, I can tell you that, you know, people are still very proud of their military. They're doing everything they can to support them. It feels like everyone in some way is mobilized to, 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 to help now. If they're not fighting... People are fundraising. They're advocating, lobbying for for their country, uh, trying to uh, trying to get attention from you know online. They're they're doing they're doing something, anything they can. You know, you were saying that you have somebody who who works with you who's from Ukraine, and that they're always you know thinking about people here and and sending money and sending things back. That is what everyone I know here is doing. You know, something along those lines, and that. I think is a way of keeping up morale and feeling as though they're all in this together. They they are aware that this could go on for a while. But they also many Ukrainians, you know, remember that this is a war that isn't, you know, 18 19 months old now. It's a war that's been waged by Russia for more than 9 years. So in some cases, um, well many cases, you know, Ukrainians have learned to live with war. And so they are, for better or worse, you know, getting used to to life in wartime and finding ways um, to to decompress, to de-stress, to to carry on life, and and these these things that they're doing, um, whether it's going out to a cafe or a restaurant or or bowling or the movie theater, you know, they're they're viewed as all these, you know, little acts of defiance. It's sort of a middle finger to Russia. You know, you can attack us, bomb us, um, destroy our homes. You're not going to take our dignity. Uh, you're not going to stop us from living. Um, you know, we're going to continue on um, to the extent we can with our lives. And that's, that's what I see and feel here. And, and it's, it's something that, that is always really inspiring.
1: Last question to you, which is obviously where is all this going? I mean, I heard you say you know they come back with a three hundred meter gain, and I've been reading that in the papers, and I must say, you know I, like everyone else, I read the stuff about the, the the offensive this this year, and then when you start reading, oh, they've taken three hundred meters, they've taken a couple of villages, you think, right that's not working, is it So I just wonder where you think this is headed I mean, I think that Consensus sort of analysis in the mainstream press in Europe is that it's a stalemate and that um, that there's years of this to come. The Russian defences are, are very difficult to break through and and that's where we are. Is that your? Do you share that view? To some extent, I do fear that there that there
0: may be something resembling a stalemate. Um, and I think you know if if that is the case, what we would. What we could see is over the course of the next many months, uh, if not years, is uh, you know just a, a on the ground level, you know, a really grinding war of attrition, a lot of back and forth without a lot of forward movement. That would this would in this case it would probably mean that um, the Ukrainians are unable to get to the strategic city of Melitopol and cut off Russia's land bridge in the south. What I think might continue. Um, or, or even be increased is the is the air war the drone war you know both both Ukraine and Russia are ramping up production on drones attack drones surveillance drones um, they've become key elements to to the war uh, especially in recent months you know that's something that could continue or even um, again you know uh, increase over that period of time while the ground war stalls but you know this I don't think we should count U- the Ukrainians out quite yet. Uh, you know, while everybody is talking about rainy season coming and winter coming, and that being uh, a point in time when perhaps this counteroffensive would would have to stop, you know, the Ukrainians know how to fight in winter. Um, they didn't stop fighting last winter. They have have fought for nine years in winter conditions. Um, you know, this is uh, also a pretty cold weather country um, after after October. So it's not that, like like this is the first time. In which they're going to be fighting in, you know, unpleasant conditions. Plus, you know, they do have a way of surprising us. I think they've they've outperformed that almost every turn. Um, you know, many people like to count the Ukrainians out because they have fewer resources, fewer soldiers, but they're extremely clever. They are fighting on their own turf. They know it well, and they're motivated because they they know what they're fighting for, right? There's this maxim that um, is very popular here, which is if 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 Russia stops fighting, um, the war will end. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine uh, will end, right? And so they're not going to stop fighting, not in October, not in November. And, and I think you know if they manage to deliver some kind of You know, decisive blow to Russia that that could force them um, to make some some bad battlefield decisions. Um, It's it's not out of the question that we could see uh, Ukraine with a more advantageous position going into spring, and and then perhaps uh, with with its uh, reserves filled with uh, more Western weaponry and better trained soldiers, uh, and and the ability again in spring to perhaps launch another counteroffensive. So, I'll just sum up by saying. There are still a lot of ways in which this this war can go. You know, one concern certainly is that it could be stalemated and grind on for years and years to come. But again, I think you know that th- there are many factors here, and and I'll add one more, and that is how much support we provide in the West to Ukraine is going to be another major factor.
1: Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, you've talked about the situation in Ukraine, but the American presidential election obviously is central to this, and uh, you know, I think Trump's made it pretty clear he won't be providing the support that's going in now so that would make a huge difference but there's not much you can you know say about that or anyone can say about it because we just have to see what happens when that election takes place look you've really helped us understand what's going on you're you're, you're in kiev as we speak you're living it uh, you have been for you know some time now you're traveling around you're meeting people talking to them writing about it so uh you know what you've got to say carries a lot of weight and we're very grateful for your time
0: yeah thank you so much it was uh, a great conversation i enjoyed it